0: please open up your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're beginning a new series today called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be starting off. The words will be on the screen for you, but if you uh, can turn in your Bible, I'd like for you to read them for yourself in front of you. And um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are some in the seat seats in front of you, so feel free to Uh, Use one of those Bibles. It's page 758 in that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you. I would like to see as people come and who don't have Bibles, I'd like to see those beginning to disappear from our seat pockets and going home with people. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 18. And friends, these words that we read here are the apostolic authoritative Word of God. They carry the same authority as if Jesus Christ were standing right here in this room speaking to you in the flesh. Same authority. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Deemer comes to bring an exposition, a proclamation, a teaching from this word, I pray, Lord, that you would empower him with your Holy Spirit Lord, that you'd strengthen him, encourage him, but I also pray for us, that we would be good listeners, that we would hear what you have to say through your word this morning, that we would hear what you have to say through the person who's bringing your word this morning. But Father, ultimately, we cannot listen, nor can Deemer preach, apart from your Holy Spirit's gracious work in our lives. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, do your work in this room this morning. May we hear and may we respond by the grace that that comes through Jesus Christ, we pray in His name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you so much, Steve, for reading and for praying. And today we do launch a, a brand new series, and I am so excited about this series. So is Steve. Uh, we're calling it "Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ." I don't think John Piper would mind if we borrowed the title from his book and applied it to this sermon series. It's just such a great title that we just had to uh, had to use it. And I think that phrase, "Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ," really does zero in uh, on the whole purpose of uh, of this series. Uh, when you say the name Jesus, not everyone sees and thinks the same thing not not everyone thinks the same thing about jesus you have all kinds of people giving you all kinds of opinions and all kinds of ideas about who jesus is you've got some people saying that jesus was a good man a good teacher Uh, He was a good guy, he was a good example for us to follow. Some say he was a a prophet, maybe just one in a long line of successions of of prophets. Uh, Some say that he he was an angel, others see him as a religious reformer, uh, uh, a rebel against the religious status quo of that time. You've got all these ideas and opinions about Jesus and some people may say, well, that's because we're 2,000 years removed from the life of Christ. So, of course, there's confusion about the identity of Jesus. Of course, we don't completely understand who he was, but that's actually not the case. The confusion about who Jesus is is nothing new. You have in Mark chapter 8, Jesus traveling with his disciples, and the text says that Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do people say that I am? And his disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and some say that you are one of the the prophets. So 2,000 years ago, there was confusion about Jesus and his identity as well, and yet at the same time, we are not expected to sit on the fence about Jesus. We're not expected to be neutral about Jesus, which is why Jesus presses the issue with Peter, and he turns to him and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That question is perhaps the most practically significant question that stands before you and stands before me this morning uh, and for the rest of your life. As far as you're concerned, it does not matter what your friends think. It doesn't matter what your neighbors think. It doesn't matter what, what other religious groups think about Jesus. The most significant question for Peter and the most significant question for you and for me is, who do you say Jesus is? And then the other question is, well, who cares? What does it matter? Who cares if you get Jesus right or not? Does it really make a difference? I mean, can't we all just honor Jesus and appreciate Jesus and learn from Jesus and admire Jesus, even if we all might have different ideas about his identity? Well, Jesus himself answers that question. And Jesus tells us that in the answer to that question, who do you say I am, Our very lives hang in the balance. Jesus says in John chapter 8, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So it is absolutely critical to believe the right thing about Jesus. doesn't matter how much you admire Jesus how excited you are about Jesus, how much you revere Jesus. Jesus is telling you from his own mouth that to not rightly believe about Jesus leads to death. So part of the purpose of this sermon series is uh, so that you will see Jesus for who he really is, not for who other people say he is. Jesus says, unless you believe I'm he, you will die in your sins. So we need to spend some time exploring who he is. So we can know and believe the right things about Jesus and see Him for who He really is. But our goal in the sermon series is not just to present you with a bunch of facts about, about Jesus. It's not just about pouring information about Jesus into your minds. You can see Jesus and you can believe the right things about Jesus. And you can have great theology about Jesus. And you can still end up being sentenced to eternal condemnation in hell forever by that same Jesus The devil has good theology. Demons have good theology and doctrine. As we travel through the Gospels, and and as we do this series, we're going to be kind of bouncing around back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As we travel through these, these four books about Jesus... We're going to see demons recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to see the satanic powers recognizing that Jesus has authority over them. We're going to see a man who's controlled by a demon confessing that Jesus is holy. The Bible tells us elsewhere that the demons believe and recognize God for who He is, and they tremble in fear In fact, the unseen principalities and powers, these wicked, invisible rulers of this age, oftentimes express better theology than most of the humans that Jesus came into contact with. And certainly express better theology than your typical, mainline, liberal, Protestant church in America. But the problem is, is that you can have the right head knowledge about Jesus. You can see Jesus on a certain level, but still miss it. But still not see. Last week, Steve wrapped up our, our message in the, uh, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends on a very triumphant note as the gospels continue to go forth and be proclaimed uh, unhindered. Uh, but it also ended on an ominous note as well. If you remember uh, the last recorded words of Paul in the book of Acts, it's words of frustration towards those who will not believe the gospel. And Paul, quoting Isaiah, says this. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. And what's Paul getting at? Paul's point is that there is a way to hear the truth. There is a way to see the truth of God, and yet still in your heart, reject that truth. Reject that word from God. You're unmoved and you're calloused to that word. It's not interesting or appetizing or attractive or, or worthwhile to you? You come to church, you hear about Jesus, and you are completely and utterly bored. It's not. It's not what's being. Communi- it's not that what's being communicated is complicated. It's not that you just. It's not that you don't, on a purely head level, grasp what you're hearing. It's just that, as the Scripture says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You indeed see, but never perceive. There is a disconnect that's not just an intellectual, simply an intellectual disconnect. It's not an intellectual problem. It's much deeper than that. It's a spiritual problem. It's a matter of the heart. But there is another kind of seeing that the Bible talks about. The Bible, for example, talks about the eyes of hearts being opened. It talks about seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And this type of seeing, where your heart is not hard, where it is alive and sensitive to the things of God, this kind of seeing leads to savoring. In fact, let me quote John Piper in his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Piper says, uh, seeing and, sa- uh, he says, savoring Jesus Christ is the response to this second kind of seeing. When you see something as true and beautiful and valuable, you savor it. That is, you treasure it. You cherish and admire and prize it. Spiritual seeing and spiritual savoring are so closely connected that it would be fair to say if you don't savor Christ, you haven't seen Christ for who he is. If you don't prize him above all things, you haven't apprehended his true worth. So the devil and his demons or that person who's been going to church all their life and yet doesn't love Jesus, they see Jesus in the sense that they understand a collection of facts and doctrines about him. They may even sign off on them and affirm that they're true. But they don't fully see him for all that he really is to the point where, where the only natural response is that they cannot help but love and adore and treasure him above all things because his worth surpasses all things. The demons see Jesus in one way. They know He's the Son of God. They believe some good theology and true doctrine about Jesus, but they don't regard Jesus as supremely valuable above all things. So, they see Jesus, and there are people like this in the world today. They see Jesus. They see, but they don't perceive. And that's the state of millions and millions and millions of of people who otherwise affirm lots of good things about Jesus, and they say lots of nice things about Jesus, and yet they're not pursuing Jesus as that treasure that is more valuable than jobs, or houses, or money, or sinful pleasures, or a whole host of things, both bad and good. So Steve and I are praying that through this series, God would open the eyes of our hearts that we may see Jesus more and more and more for all that he truly is, and that the natural response and overflow of that is going to be a deeper cherishing, a deeper savoring, and a deeper valuing of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Steve and I cannot open the eyes of your hearts. We can't make Jesus not boring to you. Your natural sinful tendency and my natural sinful pull is to be bored with Jesus, Now, if you're not a believer, that's your status quo all the time. But but if you are a believer, you will always be fighting that pull from your flesh to turn away from being captivated by Jesus and instead being consumed by lesser things. All Steve and I can do during this series is point you to Jesus. All we can do is take you through the scriptures where we get to know Jesus better uh, that point us to all that he is. And we will pray that as we go through this series, that God will do what we cannot do. That God's going to open the eyes of your hearts and my heart and Steve's heart more and more and more. We're going to pray that unbelievers who join us will see and perceive and believe and cherish Jesus above all things. We're going to pray that believers in this congregation are going to see and perceive and increase in their belief and grow in their cherishing and valuing Jesus above all things. Now, I'll give you a disclaimer for this sermon series. You know how, um, I I don't know if they do this anymore, but when I was younger and I used to buy buy CDs all all the time, they don't sell CDs anymore, do they? It's all digital now, isn't it? Uh, But... You get the CD, and sometimes on some of these these uh, CDs that have bands that don't honor Christ, there's little disclaimer labels and little warning labels about the lyrics or the the things that the content of the CDs. Let me let me give you a little warning label or disclaimer about this series. I really believe that if God answers my prayer and Steve's prayer about this series and what it's going to do, I really believe that for some of you this could be the most important sermon series you've ever heard. I believe that some lives are going to be radically changed and transformed by the power of the Spirit through these upcoming messages. And the spillover, the overflow effect from an ever-increasing seeing and savoring of Christ is going to be absolutely monumental in your life. And I pray in my life as well. It will radically affect every single thing in your life. Seeing and savoring Jesus more is going to radically affect your battle against sin in your life. It it will radically affect your ministry. It will completely transform how you parent. It will affect what kind of husband you are. It will affect what kind of wife you are, what kind of employee you are. It will affect what you do with your money, with your time, with your possessions, how you deal with adversity. It will affect how you live, and it will affect how you die. So, with that disclaimer out of the way, let's Again now. <laughs> that was that was the intro. We're gonna begin our look at Jesus in the very, very beginning. In the Gospel of John, chapter one, and these first 18 verses are known as John's prologue. He's kind of setting things up for his for, for his entire book. Now, we are not gonna be able to unpack everything there is to unpack in John's prologue this morning, okay? So I I know that. So if I'm done with the sermon and you're like, well, why didn't Deemer deal with that or talk about that? We can't do it all this morning, okay? There is so much here that as I was preparing for this, I just had to pray and ask God, God, what, what are just a couple things here that you want me to, want me to focus on? And, um, and, and, I, and I think for the remainder of our time, we're going to be focusing on three ways that Jesus is identified in this text. And, and along the way, we'll weave some, in some points of application as well. Three things, though. Uh, Jesus is identified in three specific ways. Jesus as... Word, Jesus as light, Jesus as flesh. Now let's look at the first one. Jesus as word. The opening words of John's gospel are very interesting. First three words, what does he say? He says, in the beginning. Ever hear those words anywhere else in the Bible before? Does that sound familiar to you? Where have you heard those words before? Yeah, they're not just in the opening words of the book of John. Those are the opening words of the whole Bible. Those are the first three words of Genesis where Moses writes, in the beginning, and then he goes on to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's not coincidence. John is doing this on purpose. John is deliberately reaching back into the Old Testament to tell us, hey, you know that beginning that Moses was writing about in Genesis 1-1? You know that beginning that he was talking about? The word was there. And the word is Jesus. And John is uh, identifying Jesus with the creation account in Jesus in Genesis, and in fact is telling us that Jesus is the creator, and he tells us that, that Jesus is God. Capital G. Now, I could spend the rest of this sermon talking about the Godhood of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about that before, and I promise you we will be talking about that a lot as we move forward in this series. Not going to spend a lot of time on that right now, but let me just declare before you right now that it's not that Jesus is some sort of good man, good teacher, angel, guru, or whatever. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is whom the Old Testament identifies as Yahweh. He is God. And John, this doesn't call him God, John gives him an interesting title here. John calls Jesus the Word. Ever wonder why John does that? That's kind of an interesting title to give somebody, the Word. In John's day, Greek culture and Greek philosophy had a huge impact on the Roman world. And it's interesting, the Greeks believed that the universe was created and ordered by some sort of impersonal mind, uh, this impersonal reason that was, some, that was floating out there somewhere. I always get this image of this gigantic brain floating around in outer space or whatever, but, but they, they, they had this, this idea that this, this impersonal mind was behind the creation of all things. It was just somewhere out there, and this mind was, was like an intermediary agent between God and the world. And guess what Greek philosophers called this impersonal instrument by which the universe was constructed? They called it logos. Logos, translated in our language, is word. John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the logos. Any of John's first century readers would have, who, who would have been steeped in Greek culture, any of his pagan non-Jewish Gentile readers would have immediately recognized the term Logos. That would have been a very familiar term to them, especially used in conjunction with the creation of the universe, which it is here in John's prologue. But notice how the Logos here is different than the Logos in Greek philosophy and Greek concept. We see here in John 1 that the word is not some sort of impersonal mind devoid of personality, devoid of personhood. John's telling us that this logos is very different than the Greek concept. John says that the word was with God. Now, it's interesting how the word with is used in the original language, in the Greek language, often suggests a close relationship between two persons. The, the word is is also given the Uh, personal pronoun, he, throughout the passage. The word is also identified as a son who has a father. This suggests not just a relationship, but a very close, personal, intimate relationship between two beings. Fellowship. The word we see here in John chapter 1 is clearly not the same as the ancient Greek logos, but I think it would have gotten the attention of his Greek readers. Now, this term... Logos, this term word, would have also meant something not just to Gentiles steeped in pagan religion, but it also would have meant a lot to John's Jewish readers who were steeped in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how did God create the universe? By His word. How did God communicate His law to the people? Through His word. Word. How did God reveal His will to the people? Through His Word. The Word of the Lord was given to the prophets. The Bible equates God's Word with His power, His will, His revelation. In the garden, God's Word meant life or death to Adam and Eve. To to believe the Word meant life. To reject the Word meant death. You have throughout the Old Testament Scriptures uh, phrases like, the word of the Lord came to this prophet or to that prophet. You, you hear about the word of the Lord everywhere in the Old Testament. And John comes along and he says, the word of the Lord is Jesus. Why? Think about the significance of someone's word. What comes out of someone's mouth. How many of you in, in this room have trouble sometimes with the things that come out of your mouth? I see a few honest folks here in this room. You know, um, there are some preachers who come up into the pulpit, and they have no manuscript. They have no outline. They have no notes. And they they just think about the text all week, and they study it, and they pray it, and they meditate on it. And they just come up here Sunday morning, and they just start preaching, and they do a great job. And they are better men than me. There is absolutely no way that I'm going to come up here without notes and just start talking to y'all especially because most of the times when I preach, I've had very little sleep the night before. A lot of times I'm up late working on my message on Saturday night because i got a full-time job during the week, and so I I just don't have a lot of time to get much done before the weekend. And if I come up here on Sunday morning with little to no sleep, with no notes to keep me on track, I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. You don't want me coming up here and talking off the top of my head on no sleep because it could get really scary and there might be just something crazy that comes out of my mouth in a weak, unguarded moment and I'll, I'll kick myself later on. Some of you can relate to what it's like to have to have a careful guard on your mouth because of what might come out. And sometimes what comes out of our mouths can be pretty embarrassing, can't it? And, and can be, <laughs> it can be pretty dishonoring to God. Because what comes out of our mouths, especially in those unguarded moments, is a reflection of who we are, is an expression of what's going on deep down in our hearts. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our speech, our word, especially in the unguarded moments, is an indicator of what our heart is like, what's going on in here, an indicator of of what's deep down inside. It's an expression of, of who we are. And Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is a person. Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. But Jesus is also God's Word and an expression of who God really is. He is an expression of the heart of God. That's why Jesus says later on, "...he who has seen me has seen the Father." If you want to know what God is like, you have to know Jesus. The Word, this Word, is showing us what God really is like. And not only that, but this Word is God's ultimate Word, God's final Word, God's last Word and revelation. All the previous words of God that were given to Moses and given to the prophets and spoken to the people of God in the Old Testament... Those words from God were all pointing us in one direction. They were all leading us to someone. They were all leading us and pointing us to that final word, that final revelation from God. Which is why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son." John is saying to the Greeks, you you know, you're talking about this, this power of God that's just kind of floating around out there somewhere, this impersonal mind, this creative force that governs the universe and holds it together. What you need to know is that there is a creative force that is governing the world. There is a logos that is holding the universe together, and that logos is a person that Logos is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to what you've been looking for. And then John saying to the Jews, listen, you've got all the Old Testament scriptures. You've got the Old Testament that has all these laws from God, all these rules, all these regulations. You've got all these stories in the Old Testament from Moses delivering Israel from Egypt, David and Goliath, Abraham, all these things. You've got these words from God from the past that are telling you that history is moving in a certain direction. And what you need to know is that all these things that have been laid down before are pointing you to God's final word. God's final revelation. And that word is a person. And that person is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to what you've been looking for. So Jesus as word. Second thing, Jesus as light. John says in verses 4 and 5, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 9, John says he identifies Jesus as the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, John continues to write in a way that is hearkening back to Genesis. He keeps doing this. He keeps using terms and phrases, things that keep pointing us back to to Genesis, and in particular, the creation account. You think about what goes on in Genesis in that first chapter. You've got light. You've got darkness. You've got life. You've got this word from God that is bringing all things into being. All these things are mentioned in Genesis 1 in the creation account, and you, you have Gen- in Genesis, God speaking and light coming forth, piercing the darkness. That's the image that you get in Genesis 1. How many of you used to be scared of the dark when you were kids? How many of you are still scared of the dark now? <laughs> A few of you? Yeah. Ella? <laughs> it's okay, Ella. Um, darkness tends to make us nervous. Darkness tends to make us uneasy, tends to make us fearful, and for the majority of the human race, darkness was even more fearful because most of the people who have ever lived in the history of the human race didn't have lamps, they didn't have flashlights, they didn't have um, street lights. they didn't have cell phones that you could, you know, if you're in the dark, you just pop open your cell phone and you can use that as a light. Light comes so easy to us these days. Uh, Some of you have little night lights that you put in the hallway at night. And so when you get up out of bed, you're stumbling to the bathroom. You don't trip over Legos or things like that. So here we have lights Every Most of the human race didn't live like that. For most people who have ever existed, if you didn't have the moon or if you didn't have fire, you couldn't see anything at night. I mean, some of you probably, you've gone camping or you've gone out into the woods or whatever and and the sun sets and the fire goes out and you're like, I can't see anything. I can't even see my hand right in front of me. And back then in that day and age before they had lights everywhere like we do now, it would have been a scary thing to walk alone at night. You could could easily stumble over something and hurt yourself. There might be a predator around. You couldn't see them, but they could see you. That's kind of creepy, isn't it? Or there could be a, a robber somewhere. You just don't know uh, what's, what's out there lurking for a victim. You could get lost. So the imagery of light and darkness, I think, would have meant a little more to John's original readers than it does to us today. We kind of have to take ourselves out of this context and, and think about a little bit more about what it would have been like for John's readers. John and the Bible uh, often uses darkness to depict sin and judgment and a spiritual lostness and confusion. Light in the Bible often depicts righteousness and truth... and spiritual illumination and perception. And so as John is describing Jesus as light coming into the world... John's telling you something else then. John's telling you that the world is dark. And just like in Genesis 1 when God by His word had light pierce the darkness... So now you have Jesus, the Word of God, coming like a piercing light into a dark and sinful world. But the problem, though, is man's reaction to that light, man's response to that light. Just a couple of chapters over in John chapter 3, it says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Have you ever gotten um, frustrated when you try to tell your friends, or your family, or your neighbor, or someone about Jesus, and they quickly change the subject, they shut down the conversation, they might even get a little bit hostile towards you. They feel a little threatened by that. What's going on? Because what's going on is that Jesus is light, and men don't like light. In fact, the text says in John chapter 3, they love darkness. And why do they love darkness? John tells us because in the darkness, their sin is hidden, and Jesus is a threat to them, this light coming in and disrupting this dark, comfortable world that they're used to, this world of sin and rebellion, and people don't like that. They don't see and savor Jesus. They savor their own sin and want nothing to do with Jesus. That's how all of us as sinful humans naturally are. We all know what that's like. It's not just that we are uncomfortable with the light. Scripture tells us that we hate the light. We don't even want to step out and come into the light for fear of exposure. But it's worse than that. Not only do we have our own love of sin keeping us in the dark, but the Bible says that we have an outside force, another person that wants us to stay in the dark as well. The Bible talks about Satan spiritually blinding people. For example, um, In uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, the God of this world, when we talk about the God of this world, he's saying God, small g, he's talking about the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, why has the devil done this? Well, Paul answers the question. He says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, the devil is blinding people to keep them from seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And yet, despite the darkness, despite our own dark hearts, and despite the devil blinding people, John tells us that the darkness doesn't win. John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? Why does the darkness not overcome the light? Well, let's, let's think again about how John is setting up his book in the prologue. The prologue of any book is meant to set the tone of the book, to give background information that ties ties things into the rest of the book. And throughout John's prologue, there are these statements that keep taking us back to the creation account. Light, darkness, in the beginning, word, life, things like that. The text talks about all things being made through him. The Genesis creation account is all over John's prologue. And I think John's doing this for a reason. In the Genesis account, God creates, God gives life, God gives light. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, that brought about death, that brought about darkness, that brought about a reversal of the perfect state that was in the garden before sin. Adam once loved God, now he hates God because of sin. Adam once walked in the light, now he walks in darkness. Adam once image. God the Father perfectly, now Adam images a warped and perverted reflection of God. So now, if the original creation was ruined and twisted by sin, what has to happen if God's going to redeem us? Recreation. Recreation and a restoration of life. A part of the ministry of Jesus is a ministry of recreation. That's why, for example, in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. It's uh, why in John chapter 4, Jesus talks about giving life-giving water that quenches all thirst. Or in John chapter 6, you have Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life. He says, eat of me and you will never die. The death that comes about due to sin is, is turned back through Jesus and is restored Think about Genesis chapter 2. God breathes into the nostrils of Adam and Adam is given life. What happens in John 20? In John chapter 20, you have the resurrected Jesus who breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And we know from the Scriptures that the Spirit renews, the Spirit restores, the Spirit begins to remake and rebuild that image of God in us that was twisted by sin. This picture of life of renewal, of restoration just keeps coming up over and over and over again throughout the book of John and the rest of the New Testament. Later on, Paul says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So, God's story of dealing with sin is not annihilating all the sinners, scrapping everything And starting all over, his plan is redeeming lost people, restoring life to spiritually dead men and women, reversing the effects of the fall, renewing people who are perishing in their sins. And John is saying that because this Jesus has the power to create, because he's the bringer of life, he can also renew life. He can restore life. And when he breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that's hearkening back to to Genesis. Just as as, uh, God breathed into the man and brought life into Adam's body. When Jesus breathes on the disciples, he's saying, I'm giving you life. Your spirits were once dead because of sin, but I am restoring them to life. And the way that Jesus rescued helpless sinners from death was by becoming a man himself, and that's our third and final observation, Jesus as flesh. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took on skin, Jesus took on bone, Jesus took on hair and fingernails and a heart that was pumping blood throughout his body. He took on our nature but was without sin. And John says that He dwelt among us. Literally, that word translated as dwelt could also be translated as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, that's an interesting choice of word. He pitched His tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Why might John have chosen that word? Well, this, again, takes us back to the Old Testament, where you had this tent that the Israelites had, and it was called the tabernacle. What was the significance of the tabernacle? The significance of the tabernacle is that it was the one place where a holy God and sinful men and women might meet together. In fact, one of the names of the tabernacle was the tent of meeting. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. Jesus now is that meeting place. Through him and only him, sinful men and women can meet with a holy God. I also wonder too if that, just that whole language of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, if that, that, that reminds me of, of just the, the perfect union that... God and man had before sin, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, God's desire for His people has always been to have His people dwelling with Him in a good land in safety, where there's perfect fellowship and harmony between God and His people. He says, I will be their God and you will be my people. And of course, that that fellowship, that close relationship was broken because of sin, and I think God becoming flesh is heralding that we are about to return to that time where God and man dwell together. And this is the beginning of that. Now, how can this happen? How can, how can sinful men and women meet with the holy God? People like us who deserve judgment, who deserve wrath, how can we even come into the presence of God and have a relationship with Him? I think the reason That this can be is because Jesus is both God and man. Only someone who is both God and man can pay for our sins and deliver us from the wrath of God. Whoever pays for our sins has to be both God and man at the same time. Why? We all intuitively know that every crime deserves punishment. The price has to be paid for breaking the law. If I break the speed limit, I pay a fine. If I steal a car, I do some time. If I kill somebody, my own life is forfeit. So not only do we recognize that every crime deserves punishment else justice won't be served, but we recognize that the payment for the crime needs to be in proportion to the seriousness of the crime. That's why no one goes to the electric chair for killing cats. They might pay a price, but that price will not be as high as if someone assassinated the President of the United States. It would be an overstatement of the value of the cat to send a cat killer to the electric chair. And it would be a cheap insult to the value of the President of of the United States for an assassin to just write a check for $50, pay a fine, and he's paid the price now for killing him. So if the price for a crime against an animal is a few dollars, and the price for a crime against the president could be death, then what would the price be for a crime against an eternal, completely innocent, infinite, and everlasting God who is supremely valuable, more valuable than a cat, and more valuable than the president, and more valuable than everybody else in this room or everybody else in the universe put together? The price can be nothing less than an eternal, infinite, everlasting punishment. In hell, anything less would be a cheap insult to God and his infinite worth. It would be like writing a check for $50 and saying, Here, God, I paid the fine. We're good. Hell has to be forever. Because a finite human would need eternity to pay off an infinite debt. Now... Scripture tells us that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But here's the problem, though. God just can't forgive us and sweep our sins under the rug. seems to be kind of a dilemma for God. He wants to forgive people. He wants to save people. But here's this sin that has to be dealt with. He can't just sweep it under the rug. That, by the way, is one of the differences between Christianity and Islam. In Islam, God can be merciful, but God cannot be just. The reason I say that is because in Islam, if Allah forgives someone, then all he's doing is sweeping sins under the rug because the price for sin hasn't been dealt with. There's a heinous injustice going on uh, as God just winks at sin and says, don't worry about it, I'll forgive you anyway. That kind of view of God cheapens God and it discards justice that's not the God of the Bible that's not Yahweh that's one of the differences between Yahweh and Allah God of the Bible doesn't look at your sin he doesn't look at my sin and say oh shucks don't worry about it I know I have these laws and you broken them all but hey it's all good come on in enjoy my kingdom No, it's not all good. God is a God of holiness and of righteousness and a God of justice. We sinful humans get angry when criminals go free, and how dare we think that we are more just than God. God says the wages of sin is death, period. The death sentence is climaxed in eternity in hell, and the only way for the justice of God to be satisfied is for you to be there forever and for me to be there forever The only way, that is, unless the price could be paid by another. But here's the thing. It's got to be paid by a man. A sacrificed animal can't pay for sins. An angel can't pay for sins. A man sinned. Adam sinned. We followed his lead, so the price needs to be paid by a man. Anyone see a problem with that? There's at least two problems. One is that the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, you and I are surrounded by a bunch of other sinners who owe the same debt as we do. If you're in debt a trillion dollars and your neighbor is in debt a trillion dollars, you can't rely on your neighbor to pay your debt. He's got his own debt to worry about. We're all debtors to an infinite, of an infinite amount before an infinite God. The other problem is that there is no way a finite... Limited human being can pay an infinite debt for someone else. There's only one person in the world who is infinite, who does not owe any debt, who himself has no no sin of his own to worry about, and that person is God. But again, I just said earlier that it has to be a man that pays the price. A man sinned, Adam sinned, we've all followed his lead, but Adam was the head of the sinful race. A man got us. A man got us and this world into this predicament, and we need a man to get us out of it. We need someone who is infinite and who owes no debt, and we need a man to pay the price for sin. Answer, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Jesus was man so he could pay for sins. And Jesus is also infinite God, which is why he could absorb the entire wrath of God in but a moment in time on the cross instead of having to go to hell forever. God put our sins on Jesus Christ who knew no sin. In redemption and exchange happens, friends. He gets He gets our sin and punishment, we get his righteousness in life, so that after we have come to faith in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he sees that the price for our sins has already been paid in Jesus on the cross. And because the price has been paid by Jesus, we don't have to pay it in hell. And because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we don't have to worry about incurring God's wrath ever again. We're forever free. That's good news. So, the gospel means good news. It's an announcement of this. And Jesus, though he was a sin bearer, was not a sinner, which means that death could not hold him. And he was raised from the dead three days later to herald the beginning of a new, recreated humanity. And as Adam was the head of the old, corrupt, dead humanity, so Jesus is the head of the new, recreated humanity. And God did not do this out of obligation, but did it because of his great love. John, two chapters later, writes in chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the payment, I'm wrapping it up, don't worry. And the payment, imagine if I tried to cover everything in this prologue. We'd be here for a couple hours. I'm almost done. And the payment that Jesus made for sins is applied to the account of everyone who is united to Jesus by faith. To place your faith in Jesus means to trust what Jesus did on the cross to pay for your sins. It means that you trust this man so much that you are staking your entire life on him. It means turning away from the things that you were chasing, that you thought would satisfy you. And it means turning towards Jesus and beginning a lifelong journey of learning how to be satisfied in him alone. It means a willingness to learn how to see and savor Jesus Christ. That's that's what faith looks like. To say I believe in Jesus and want to be saved but want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus is evidence that you really don't have faith that you really don't trust Jesus. All it means is that you don't want to go to hell. It means that you don't really receive him, though. And yet, what does John say? John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some of you in this room are already... Children of God, you've received Jesus, you placed your faith in him, you were once darkness and now you are light, as the scripture says elsewhere, and yet you recognize that you still have a long way to go in really seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. You still battle those old tendencies, don't you? That pull of your sinful flesh to take greater pleasure and delight in other things and not in Jesus You can, if you're like me, you can look back on this week, maybe even on this morning, and think of times when you didn't really savor Jesus like you should have. You savored sin. You pursued other things with greater zeal than you pursued Jesus. You need to repent of that right now. And you need to repent of not savoring Jesus like you should. But you also need to remember that Jesus paid for those sins, and there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. You need to recognize that this morning. Realize that. But then ask God to increase your faith and to increase your appetite for the things of God. That's what we need. We need an increased appetite for the things of God and a decreased appetite for the things of this world. And I really do believe, as I said in the very beginning of this message, that, that as God increases that appetite and that desire and that, that seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, I really believe it is going to have mind blowing effects on your life some of you in this room may not be children of God maybe that scripture I read earlier describes how you've been you will indeed hear but never understand you will indeed see but never perceive and if this morning you're thinking that's been me my whole life I've heard about God I've heard about Jesus but it never penetrated into my heart but I think it's maybe starting to now if that's you this morning, that may well be evidence that God's working on you big time and he's moving you towards faith. And so I would ask you this morning to cry out to God in your heart, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Scripture says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And If you call on him this morning, he will save you. The blood that Jesus shed, the price that Jesus paid will be credited to your account. And you'll owe God nothing. Because it's not about the things you can do for God. It's about what God has done for sinners. And that debt you owe is erased at the cross. Jesus is good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take the words that were preached this morning, the verses that were read, I pray that you would use these words to cut to the heart of me and my friends here this morning. Bible says the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, God, so I pray the Word would cut, and I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you even more and love you even more and savor you even more for the glory of God. You deserve to be savored. You deserve to be desired above all things, God. Help us to fall in line with that and to give you what you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.